0: Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. The 1945 Tigers may be the least known and celebrated of the Tigers' four championship teams. Each of the other three title winners in 1935, 1968, and 1984 defined their era with a host of household names and historic achievements. Each of those other three can lay claim to being the greatest Tiger team of all time. Compared with them, the 1945 team, playing during a wartime era of depleted Major League rosters, might feel like an afterthought. But what the 1945 Tigers achieved was historic and memorable in its own way. This is a season that featured the only Major League pitcher ever to win back-to-back MVPs in Hal Neuhauser, two dramatic home runs by the immortal Hank Greenberg, one in his first game back from the war and another, a grand slam, that won the pennant, and a World Series that featured a fateful Billy Goat, in extra-inning sixth game, and a Tigers triumph in Game 7. Burge Carmen Smith followed this Tigers team as a boy in Adrian, Michigan. In the early 2000s, he began interviewing each of the surviving members of the team, and in 2010, he published his book, The 1945 Detroit Tigers, Nine Old Men and One Young Left Arm Win It All. Last year, the final remaining member of the 45 Tigers, rookie outfielder Ed Merkowitz, passed away at age 93. But Burge Carmen Smith is determined that this team's championship legacy will never be forgotten. Burge Carmen Smith is author of The 1945 Detroit Tigers, Nine Old Men and One Young Left Arm Win It All. Burge, welcome. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure, David. So this is a story about the team of your boyhood. You were growing up in Adrian, Michigan as a Tigers fan. And the book starts at the end of the 1944 season. Tell us about being a young Tigers fan and seeing the Tigers go into the last weekend of the season with the pennant lead only to lose the pennant by one game.
1: Well, in 1944, we thought that the Tigers were going to win it. I mean, everybody seemed to think that way. One good thing about in those days, you could walk just about anywhere on the streets and you'd hear the Tiger game being broadcasted. People followed them really tight during that time. They, ever since they won the pennants in the World Series in the mid-30s, Michigan was really, especially southeastern Michigan, really strong on baseball. And at that time, we figured that uh, they were going to be able to um, win several games out of the set they were playing against Washington, and then the, then the Yankees were playing the Browns. And nobody thought the Browns were going to sweep the Yankees, but that's exactly what happened. And then uh, Dizzy Trout, I think, lost that last game against Washington. Uh, he had been overused and overworked uh, quite a bit. He was really kind of a favorite of O'Neill's, and he'd pitch him um, uh, in relief, uh, as he did with Newhauser, too. But it seemed like Trout was something he could always count on. And then when they lost that, you know, that was a downer we thought they, they would be going back. And so when 1945 rolled around, they were still very tight. That pennant race was real tight. So I was kind of nervous as a kid. I didn't know whether they are going to be able to pull it off or not.
0: Did you make it to any games at Briggs Stadium that year, or were you mostly following listening to the radio at home?
1: Uh, listening to the radio at home, reading the papers and sporting news and things like that, uh, I didn't really... I wasn't able to get to a, a Tiger game till the next year. On uh, my birthday, there were about four of us that went in there. That, but that that's kind of a separate story. But we went in on the 4th of July, and they had a doubleheader with uh, Cleveland, I believe it was. And I went in to see Greenberg, and, and this was in '46 because that was the year he started out slow, and he came back and won the uh, home run title and the RBI title. But in that double they only played him in one game and he got a scratch hit. That's the first time I've ever seen him in person. But Columbine, Columbine hit three home runs that day one over the left field wall and two over, uh, one of them off the facing of the second deck and right, and one over the, the screen in right field. And so I've never quite forgot that game and, and how it all went down. But that was in 46.
0: Before we go back to 45, can I ask you one more question about your first game in 46? After years of listening to Tiger games and evoking the image of the stadium in your mind, what do you remember about walking into Briggs Stadium and seeing the inside of that stadium for the first time?
1: Oh, uh, that was that that was a great experience, uh, and I've never forgotten it. The thing about uh, we grabbed the train. There was about four, three or four of us, and we grabbed the train and had breakfast, and uh, we, we got down to Briggs Stadium. And when we got in there, what a refreshing thing that was to get in there. I could hear the, they were uh, having infield practice and batting practice, and you, you could hear the crack of the bat, and you could hear the guys chattering out in the infield, and you could smell the, the beer and the peanuts and the hot dogs and it was it was an overwhelming experience when I walked in there. Uh and I'd never forgotten it. It uh was one of those things that just just hammered all of your senses when you when you came in. The crowd, you know, was large and it was talking and milling and, and uh never been in anything like that before. And uh there you saw all these guys in that uh, the beautiful white uniforms with that Great English D on them, you know, and uh, they were just off the World Series being champions and everything. And it had been the year after the war, so all these guys came back from the war. And they had guys like Evers and Groth and Wirtz and Lipon and all these guys back out there, you know, uh, that had come back from the war. Tebbets had, had returned. And it was uh, a moment that uh, was uh, really uh, overwhelming to take in all at one time. loved it
0: when you listen to the games back at home you were listening to the great harry heilman the hall of fame player eventual hall of fame player turned broadcaster for the tigers what do you remember about him calling the games oh (laughs) harry was a a good storyteller
1: but one thing about harry was he would call the game george cal did too i mean he they didn't go up on tantrums or anything like that you know didn't go off on arguing uh, a call or something like that. They might might say, well, it could have gone either way or something like that at the most. And uh, they didn't get real, real excited, you know, but at the same time, you could see it in your mind. You could see these things uh, developing in your mind. Uh, you know, one out uh, and all of a sudden there's a walk and a base hit and a possible double play. All that stuff started to... Uh, go through your head when they were they were revealing it, and you were listening to baseball, and he was talking baseball, you know uh, like getting pitched on the inside the outside, dropping the uh the speed on the ball picking it up you know and you you begin to learn baseball just by listening to Harry Hamlin and then once in a while he'd throw a story in there about Cobb or somebody like that, you know, and once th- they hit a home run <laughs> That's where it was really kind of neat. You'd be listening to the radio, and Harry would have that have that expression. He would say, it's trouble, trouble, trouble. It's a home run. And that was the greatest excitement Harry would give over the broadcast, out of the broadcast booth. And and uh, then, as he would say that in that, that phrase, he would drop that mic outside of the, uh, the broadcast booth, and you could hear the crowd after a home run was hit like that. And uh, your senses, again, your your emotions and, and, and everything, would just get real excited about what had just taken place out there in that field.
0: Well, let's talk about the 1945 season, which is the subject of your book. And it opens, of course, toward the end of World War II, and a number of big league players are off at war. And so... The only players that are left are those that are too young, too old, or have received what's called 4F deferments. Can you explain the effect that the war had on Major League rosters, including the Tigers?
1: Oh, yeah. You never knew. Uh, when I was talking with some of these people that I interviewed, you know, they said it was, it was uh, how they put it, um, contemptuous time because you couldn't plan anything. You didn't know uh, who was going to be there. You didn't know, and these players didn't know whether, uh, if they were there at the time. They didn't know whether they'd be called up or somebody else would be called up. And uh, baseball was struggling, and so they had uh, a great deal of uh, problems. In fact, Landis was thinking uh, earlier in the, when the war broke out of uh, canceling Major League Baseball, and Roosevelt gave him that famous green light letter at where he told him, you know, we think it'd be in the interests of uh, morale for the country to keep baseball going, and so they did, but these owners struggled trying to put a good product out on the field and so in forty five they started to get a few ball players back from the war in particular uh Greenberg came back for the Tigers, feller came back for the Indians DiMaggio, I think came back towards the end, but he didn't it was too late for him to Get in any kind of shape. Feller was always in shape. He was. He did PT in the Navy, and uh, and he he also had been playing with uh, Mickey Cochran's team at one time up there in the Great Lakes. And Greenberg, he really had to work when he came back, and because uh, he didn't play baseball uh, in the service, and he was serving in India at that time. And I remember Houdeman, uh Huneman and Pierce. Pierce told me. That he said we had a cut when he came back. They brought us in from Buffalo, and he said we had a pitch bat and practice to him, and he kept us out there all day long. He'd always want to go and bring us, uh, take us out to dinner, and he he treated us real nice, but he was really working at it, and and uh, he he could really hit that baseball, you know, and but uh, he needed he needed a lot of work, and they worked him. he worked those those pitchers pretty hard during that particular time but um Pierce said uh, we were teenagers you know and he said we had other other uh, interests and so on and so we didn't uh, we didn't take him up on his invitations and so forth but but he really impressed us with his work ethic he mentioned his blisters on his hands and things like that and how often he swung and tried to get the body in shape Greenberg made a statement, I believe it was in his book, that he was in shape when he came back, but he wasn't in shape to play baseball. And uh, he had to get those legs in shape, and he had to get that swing back. And uh, so he had to work at it.
0: The Tigers' best player heading into the 1945 season was reigning MVP Hal Newhouser. First of all, why had Newhouser received a 4F deferment that kept him out of military service?
1: Well, he had a heart problem, and uh, he um, actually, they thought that, you know, he could, the doc didn't even want him to play baseball. He thought he could die out there on the field from the exertion. Now, I, I don't know what it was. It it was his heart skipped beats and things like that. I know he had a tremendous appetite, as skinny as he was. Uh, Borum used to tell me, he says, in spring training, he says, I've never seen a guy devour chicken like, like Newhouser did. Uh, he said he could he could almost take a complete chicken and devour it. So he had appetite and he had the talent to throw and the, the competitiveness and everything. But he did have that heart problem. And he it's not that he didn't want to serve because he he tried to enlist several times in different uh, services, but they always caught that heart problem. So uh, they didn't take him. This was difficult for him he wasn't alone there were other guys uh that stayed at home and didn't serve for one reason or the other frank sinatra comes to mind he was not real popular with a lot of people at that time because he was staying at home you know singing his songs and everything and making money and he was pretty he was healthy enough to go into the service Uh, at least they thought so i don't know what kind of deferment he ever had but it might have been an entertainment thing, you know, like Hope and Crosby and those guys. But then there was there was uh, newhauser, So uh, Neuhauser had his problems. They they wrote some bad things about him. They threatened some guys, even threatened him, you know, because he didn't uh, serve in the in the armed forces. But uh, it was a legitimate thing. He the doc doc uh, explained to him, you know, that you got to be careful about your diet, about how you eat and. And uh, what you do, because uh the heart could give out on you, so that's that's why Newhauser uh stayed at home
0: but because his condition wasn't visible, he was viewed with some suspicion, as you mentioned, right so w- did that become a chip on his shoulder as he competed?
1: Well, I don't know about that being uh, uh, Newhauser was competitive uh he he was very um high he he didn't like to lose and he was young at that time you know out of all those out of all those guys um, that played on that team that the title of the book uh, subtitle is nine old men and one young left arm When it all and uh... this was a very old ball club. uh that the fourth game of the world series and i think it still holds today that was the oldest baseball team that ever set foot on a, on a world series field and uh... newhauser playing with these guys He was in his early 20s at that time. But he was really competitive, and I don't think it it was necessarily that uh, he had a chip about people getting out his case about the war or anything like that. I think he was just a competitive athlete, and uh, very competitive, in fact.
0: You mentioned that with the Tigers roster being relatively old, all the rosters being relatively old, It was a tricky situation for manager Steve O'Neill. He couldn't push the team as much as he maybe wanted to or ordinarily would. Uh, Talk about the role that he played with that roster that season.
1: Well, O'Neill had been around a long time. He used to be a catcher in the old days. Uh, In fact, he he even played uh, against Cobb and those guys, and he was a good catcher. He played for Cleveland, I believe, and he, he knew baseball pretty good. And he had been in the Tiger system for a while as a manager in some of their minor league teams and he knew this makeup and so when they picked him to succeed Dell Baker, uh he knew what he was getting and he knew what he wanted and as it became difficult for him to find ball players because they were coming and going, like Wakefield came up and it was sensation in forty four but then he was gone, you know, because they drafted him. But he, he looked over there and he saw guys like Jimmy Outlaw who had played for him. Now, Outlaw was not a Wakefield in talent, but Outlaw was a hustler, and he knew what he could get out of Jimmy. And so he knew these players pretty good inside and out, and he also kn- knew what he needed to find out there trying to uh, fill out, especially uh, that one left field position at that time uh, during spring training. But um, he had to work with what he had and uh, so he he had to be lenient in in many respects knowing that there is only so much talent to go around there but uh he was very quiet about how he went about it and everything unless you knew him real well uh red barn said i don't think he'd spoke to, two words to me during the whole spring training He said i got uh, most of my uh, my experience and my knowledge about what how to play the game and everything uh from uh, guys like Paul Richards and uh, Tommy Bridges and Jimmy Outlaw and these guys, he said, they helped me with those things more than O'Neill did. But O'Neal, um, O'Neal was pretty savvy about what he did. He also had a gout problem uh, really bad, and uh, there were times he couldn't make it to the ballpark. And that's where Paul Richards came in. Paul Richards, he he was an old ball player, spent a couple of t- uh years not very much With I think the Giants in one case and there was one other team I think right off the top of my head I can't remember now but uh, but then he became manager of Atlanta which was a pretty high class uh, uh, minor league team at that time and uh, Richards was a very very sharp baseball man and so uh, O'Neal listened to him and uh, Richards was pretty good about giving advice and he also was a catcher and he could handle uh, Newhouser. They almost traded Newhouser in 43 because uh, he was not easy to deal with and he wasn't winning and he'd blow up on him in the locker room and and so on. And so when Richards came in, he he explained to him and he got him to throw the change up and he got him to move his locations around and get his control in order. And... uh, Newhouse believed in him, had great faith in him, and it, the chemistry worked real well. And so, between being lenient at the right time, and being patient, and allowing Richards to, you know, uh, work uh, his knowledge uh, with uh, certain ballplayers, O'Neill uh, O'Neill uh, ran a pretty successful outfit at that
0: time. There's so many great characters on this team that come out in your book. One is Rudy York. Uh, tell us about the damage he accidentally caused in multiple hotel rooms.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Rudy was uh, a... <laughs> Rudy, Rudy was... It's too bad, because Rudy, Rudy was a talent. When he first came up in the 30s, I mean, nobody... <laughs> he and Greenberg were like Garrick and Ruth. I mean, they were hitting home runs left and right, setting records... Uh, right, both of them right-handed hitters, and uh, but Rudy, Rudy was kind of a wild guy. He he uh, got into drinking, and uh, when the war came about, of course he didn't have to go in or anything, and he didn't have anybody to really push him hard or anything. And his habits got worse, and his drinking got worse, and you could see by his stats what happened. I think one of those years he led the league in home runs and maybe RBIs, but. He kind of let his talents deteriorate a little bit there. And uh, so uh, he did not have a great year in '45. but uh, they all loved Rudy. He evidently had a big heart. I know Borm said he threw me a pair of Spikes that uh, was his own when mine wore out. I didn't have anything to buy anything with. He, he gave me that, and other people spoke of him that way too. But uh, his big fault, a big failing was uh, setting hotels on fire, mattresses. He'd fall asleep in bed with a cigar or with a cigarette, and the doggone thing would start on fire. And Rudy York says that's why they put that poster up about smoking (laughs) and and, uh, bed in the hotels at that time, because Rudy did that so often. And uh, it uh, became quite a distraction. It's kind of interesting, because... They traded him at the end of 45, uh, believing they're not going to get him better. But they traded him to Boston. And Rudy actually had a great year over there with the Red Sox and helped them win the pennant. And when the World Series came by that year, the uh, Cardinals won the the series. But uh, Rudy for Boston, he had a pretty good series. But that was Rudy York.
0: Let's talk about Hank Greenberg and his amazing comeback midway through the season. He gets released from military service, I believe, in early June. And he, at that point, hadn't been sure he'd ever play baseball again, at least at the major league level. And then when he was released, he he realized that even if he could take the field, he didn't know if he could catch up to major league pitching after three and a half years away. And so you mentioned him taking hours and hours of batting practice. So he returns to the lineup on July 1, and how long did it take him in his first game back to make the adjustment?
1: Well, uh, he, he got, uh, by the time he got in the lineup, uh, he started hitting, and it didn't take him all that long. He was a real student of the game, and he had the talent. I mean, he was not fast or quick or anything like that, although he wasn't real, real slow, but he had power. And he could hit a baseball, and there wasn't anybody on that ball club that doubted that Greenberg could leave the park at any moment with one swing. And he, when he came back and he worked at it like he did, he was he was valuable. I don't think they would have won it without him. Uh, he came through for many many, of course, at the end in particular. But he was the main uh, hitter in that lineup that uh, that was able to bring in the runs. And you put him together with York and Columbine in particular, and even Kramer, you know, and you got a run production there.
0: It's pretty good. And it was that first game back, right? Was it his third at bat? He launches a home run, one of his most memorable home runs ever, making his, uh, not debut, but his return from service.
1: Yeah, he did. He hit a home run the first game he came back. Uh, the pitcher actually was pretty proud. He hit a home run off of it. <laughs> Uh, because Greenberg had had a lot of uh, a lot of publicity, and everybody was waiting for that first home run, and uh, so when it came at the in the first ball game like that, uh, Detroit was pretty excited about Greenberg returning to his old form again, and uh, uh, he he did uh, pretty much. He had a couple uh, moment uh, times in the lineup where he was, was off a little bit and slumped some, but he, he popped back pretty quick. And uh, they depended on him a lot, and uh, he he came through for them.
0: So as the season plays out, the pennant race is really close. The Tigers maintain a lead for largely after uh, Greenberg's return, but never more than just a few games, often one or two games, battling mostly with Washington. And then there's that September stretch where they have a is it twenty three game road trip, including several double headers involving make up games from earlier in the season. Their pitching was running thin. How did they stay in the race and just ahead in the race during that long slog of september?
1: yeah they um they came together pretty good. They got the runs the pitching held up in the long run, but it was it was well, you're right. They were thin in pitching it became pretty difficult in fact, Newhouser had a had a bad arm problem right around that time. If I remember right, I know they had gone into New York and they left him at home and they wanted him really bad to come back. And Neuhauser thought he was going to rest up, and I think it was O'Neill called him and said, uh, told him to come to New York. we, we got to use you. But that was the type of thing that went on with him. A lot of them played through injuries. Boreham came off the bench uh, at that time because uh, Mayo had, a, had back problems, and he, he came through for him during that time as well. And Outlaw, in particular, in that Washington series, he had a career date in that doubleheader that they swept from Washington. And uh, these were things that, you know, weren't all clicking together like they did during that particular time, but they came through pretty good. Their pitching was hurting, though. Benton, they really depended on Al Benton, and he got his leg broke on a line drive from Estralla from Philadelphia, I believe. And he, he was limited in what he could throw innings-wise. And he had gotten off to a good start, and Benton was a good pitcher. They figured they, he might be another 20-game winner with Trout and Newhauser going for him. That They will really have the pitching. Everybody thought that would go for him, but with that injury, uh, that hurt him, and that really strung him out. It was really Trout and Neuhauser, and uh, those were the guys that um, they would uh, relieve each other and, and would – go distances they would go the full distance if they could you know that was a that was quite the quite the run they had
0: and so it all comes down to the last game of the season in st louis the tigers are up one game over washington but they need to win this last one they have to wait a few days because there's torrential rains that leave the field almost unplayable you say the game wouldn't have been played unless it mattered which it did and there's hardly anybody in the stands, and so the Tigers slog through this game. They're trailing by one run, and then tell us what happens in the top of the ninth. <laughs> yeah,
1: the top of the ninth. Oh, yeah, that was that was quite the thing. Uh, I know that um, he stuck a Hub Walker in there to pinch hit, and he stroked a single in the center field. The next guy up was um, Peter Webb, and uh, I think he dropped a bunt down. And the throw well, McQueen picked it up and uh, threw the ball off line and uh, they were both safe at second both guys won at first and won at second and then um, the um, next guy up was Mayo, he dropped the bunt down and he moved him over to second and third and uh, Doc Kramer came up to bat and Doc Kramer, good hitter he was an old guy but he was a good hitter and uh, a lot of people think Doc Kramer should have been in the Hall of Fame he, he had a great arm on him and uh, he, he he was a pretty good sized guy but he wasn't noted for home runs but he was noted for uh, doubles and singles and uh, they were a little bit concerned about that uh, with him in scoring position uh, uh, with, a, with one out in particular so they figured the percentages Luke Sewell was the manager I think Uh, He said uh, to himself that, you know, I think uh, we'll take our chances with Greenberg, of all things, because we figure that uh, Greenberg, uh, if if we could get him to hit a ground ball, he's not going to beat it out in this mud and rain anyway, and he doesn't run as fast as most of them. But Kramer could hurt us by uh, knocking in two runs with just a single. So they played percentages as they saw him, and they they walked him, and Greenberg comes up. Uh, Greenberg... I I was talking with John McHale about this, and (laughs) Greenberg had been sitting on the bench, and he was a very observing guy about how how people played and things like that and what went on. And Greenberg had been watching Potter really close. Potter was a tough pitcher, by the way. He was no slouch, but it was at the end of the game. He was getting pretty tired. And Greenberg had been watching him through the game, and he was sitting on a bench, and he sat down between a couple of rookies. Greenberg hung out with a lot of rookies sometimes. And uh, sat between McHale and Merkowitz. And uh, McHale said he turned to us, and he said, you know, I think I got this guy figured out. He said when he uh, comes up over his head and brings the glove and ball back by his neck, you're going to see a fastball. But if he brings the ball up and he stops at the tip of his cap, you're going to see a breaking pitch, probably the screwball. And he says, I think I got him figured out. And so Greenberg walks up there. Now, you've got to understand, I don't know if you remember the movie The Natural, uh, when uh, Redford hit that home run in the rain, everything like that. Uh, you had those elements in spades here. I mean, they, it had been raining in the Midwest for weeks, and this didn't seem like it was ever going to stop. And the field was just muddy as all get out. That was the situation with the rain coming down and with the mud on the field and with uh, the uh, tying and the lead runs on the, on, on the bases, Greenberg comes up knowing what he knows about Potter. And so Potter throws one in there, and it's a ball the next pitch he goes to the tip of his cap and Greenberg knows what's coming and he hits that thing a mile now that baby was really tagged and they tell me that the big thing about that that hit was that there was a lot of controversy about whether it was fair or foul because it was really close to the foul line to the pole and he said The guys in the dugout were coming out of the dugout to take a look at it. You know, Greenberg had had hit it, and he wasn't running really hard. He was kind of in a slow trap because he didn't know whether it was going to stay fair or foul. Umpire called it fair. And that was a home run, of course, a grand slam. And they uh, poured four runs across the plate, and from being behind three to two, they went ahead six to three, and the Browns went nuts. They they were yelling and screaming and they were <laughs> they were saying it was a foul ball and the fans there weren't too many of them left in the in the park but the fans also were trying to explain it was a foul ball and but it was fair and uh, so it stood and uh, they rode Greenberg's back and slapped him around and patted him and all over the place even kissed him took him right into the into the dugout they were so happy because they knew they were going to hold that lead. And so uh, that's the way that uh, that thing ended. Now, uh, I I talked with Borm afterwards. I said, Is that, "Was that thing anywhere close to being fouled? And he said, "Oh yeah." He said it was close to being foul. And he was he told me about a guy that I I wish I could remember the name of the St. Louis guy he was talking about, but he said we were at a banquet uh, where Greenberg was being honored down south, the Beaumont or somewhere, and he said this guy was there, and when the guy talked about the home run when introducing Greenberg, he said this ex-Sanx Louis Brownie got up and said the ball was foul. And he said he kind of took exception to them talking about that as being a fair ball, and he, he talked pretty sharp about it, and uh, Greenberg said, well, he says, you can um, you can call somebody up, but it's in the book. It's fair. <laughs> so... It's over with, and it's done with, but it hadn't been over with in his mind anyway. But at any rate, that was really quite exciting. I was listening to it on the radio, I know, and boy, uh, as a kid, you know, you're into it, and you're right there with him on the field and everything, and my heart just went up about 800 beats. But uh, that was that ninth inning.
0: A grand slam to give the Tigers the pennant, one of the greatest home runs in Tigers history by the great Hank Greenberg. So that sends the Tigers to the World Series to face the Cubs, and the World Series format is 3-4, three games in Detroit, and then all four at Wrigley. Now, the war was over at this point. There had been the Japanese surrender in August, so why were there still travel restrictions that forced that format for the World Series?
1: Well, those travel restrictions. I mean, you do, you don't take up, you don't transform these rules and everything. You had a lot of troops coming back. You had to make room, and you had supplies moving. I mean, even though the war was over with, you still had supplies going back and forth, and you had troops coming back and and going here and there. And they they took priority. Anything that had to do with uh, service people, uh, you would have had to live uh, during that time to really understand the feeling of patriotism. Uh, that was going through our country, particularly at that particular time in, in 1945, after the war was officially declared over with, and it hadn't been over with that long, and so all these things are still moving, you know, and so the trains were needed because uh, they had to be uh, redeposited in uh, different areas. So that that's basically why the transportation rules were still in, in effect. And uh, they weren't real sure on how to do that, but that's what they came up with. And uh, they played the first three in Detroit and the next four in uh, Chicago.
0: So the Tigers dropped two of three in Detroit to go down two games to one, heading to Chicago. And then game four, one of the most famous moments in Cubs history, where Billy Sianis and his Billy Goat uh, are removed from Wrigley Field. I'd always heard that they had been turned away at the gate, but they actually got into the stadium, paraded around with a sign that said, we've gotten Detroit's goat, took a seat, <laughs> yeah. and then ushers told them that they couldn't let him stay because of the smell and distraction of this goat. I hadn't realized that they actually got in the park, but uh, but they didn't stay there.
1: Well, you know, uh, Siena, that was his pet goat. And uh, Siena was a Cub fan. And he actually had brought the cub, uh, the goat in to uh, watch the Cubs play during the season, and there wasn't any problem. You know, nobody complained or anything like that. I remember McHale um, talking with McHale, and he said, "When we were in Montreal, we had different animals that would come with as pets. You know, and there wasn't any problem. We didn't have any problem with that." And, see, and actually, the Cubs didn't have a problem during the season with Sianis, and he was, he was a big fan. Bought two tickets, one for his animal and one for himself. And so when he got those tickets, you know, nobody thought anything about it. But the crowd was a different crowd that came in. You know, this is the World Series. And Wrigley had a different attitude about things when the World Series came to be. He and Briggs were kind of... Have a little competitive thing of going back and forth about who, who was going to have the you know the best ballpark, uh, and how clean it was going to be, and how sharp and how beautiful it was going to be laid out and everything, because that these games were sellouts, all of them, and so Siannis got in the ballpark without any problem, and Trucks told me he says I remember him marching around you know with that sign, on the goat, uh, he said. Uh, But we didn't we didn't understand what took place after that. Of course, we were tied up with the ball game, and evidently, Wrigley had a pretty strong rule for the World Series. You know that everything had to be just so so. So, when Sianis came back and that goat was uh, he got in the park and that goat had its seat and everything, Uh, there were people around there that weren't used to something like that, and they were pretty good patrons, evidently, uh, and uh, whoever it was started complaining, and they called an usher, and the usher came down there and uh, explained to Siennes that uh, the goat was probably going to have to go, and Siennes got very stubborn about it and said, no, I don't think so, I got two tickets there, and uh, <laughs> the goat's got one of them, and so they had an argument, So the head usher comes down. Now, the head usher, he's very concerned about everything going just right. He was in charge of security. And so he got into the argument with him, and uh, it got pretty heated. And finally, Sienna says, call Wrigley. So he did. And Wrigley, I don't know how long he thought about it, but he came up with the idea that he didn't want anything to soil the World Series. So he had him removed. And of course, that's how the tale starts. That he, Fianus, went back to his tavern, and he was upset. And uh, he said that because of what they did, they're not going to win any more World Series or pennants. And uh, that was the uh, that was a goat curse. And uh, they didn't until last year. <laughs>
0: So the Tigers took those first two games at Wrigley Field to take a 3-2 series lead, and they feel like they're going to f- close it out in Game 6, but they lose Game 6 in extra innings. When you talk to these players, when you interviewed them a few years back, how deflating did they say that Game 6 loss was, or how confident were they going into Game 7 knowing that yeah. Neuhauser would take the mound?
1: Well, they, uh,
0: <laughs> they knew they should have won that ball game
1: when they went into that sixth game they um, had a had a really good shot at it and and uh, when they got into uh, that extra innings that ball took hit a sprinkler out there and greenberger went over greenberg's shoulder and uh, they scored that winning run they should have won the ball game but they didn't but uh, baseball's baseball those things happen and uh, so they went out the next day they knew they had to do it and then Grimm made the biggest mistake he could have made. He started Hank Barroi. And Barroy had just relieved in the sixth game for him. And he had pitched in two other games. And Grimm had a lot of faith in Barroy, too much so in this case. Neuhauser said when they put the uh, lineups in, he said, uh, they asked him about that, the reporters did. And he said, they said, we'll have him out of there in a hurry. You just wait and see. Because there wasn't that much left in the arm, and of all people, they loaded the bases and slammed in a couple runs right off the bat. And then Richards comes up with the bases loaded and doubles down the left field line, and uh, that really was the ball game right there. And Newhouser, when you give Newhouser a lead like that, I don't care who you are, Newhouser will at that time he would uh, measure himself. He might give up a run or two, but he never lets you get hold of that uh, deciding moment where you can uh, make a move on him, and uh, that's what he did. He, he controlled the ball game from his viewpoint. They never never were in a position to win it, and so as soon as they saw Barori's name in the box scores, they pretty well, all those guys knew that they they were going to have a field day.
0: So, for this book, you went and interviewed as many of the living players from this team as you could. I believe this was in the early two thousands. How many players did you end up interviewing, and what impressions did you get from those interviews? what What do you remember? What stands out to you about those conversations?
1: Oh, yeah, it was that was a great opportunity uh, that I had. I, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I I had watched these guys and listened to them and read about them and. They were like family to me, because I lived to see what they were doing in the papers or what Al-Haman was talking about them. And these guys were, uh, I wanted to know everything I could about them when I was a kid. And they were uh, very important to me. Let's see, I had about six of them, I think, that I interviewed. I interviewed all the living ones except Eddie Mail. I had problems with Mail. I don't know, uh, Mayo, uh, I think uh, he wanted to make a few bucks, and uh, he also was very leery. I think he had gotten gotten burnt on um, a car deal or something. I had long talks with him, but I could never convince him to interview with me. But I uh, interviewed uh, Virgil Trucks, Billy Pierce, Jimmy Outlaw, Les Mueller, Ed Merkowitz, Johnny McHale, uh, Borum, and... Uh, George Kell uh, at that time interviewed with me, and, and he was playing with Philadelphia at that time. But Borum was a wealth of information. I I started looking for these guys and seeing where they were if I could. I had to do a lot of research, and I found Borum in the Dallas area, Richardson. And He was really eager to talk about it, and so I drove up there. Uh, what I would do, I was working, and um, I had retired as a coach and a teacher, and I I was working in um, Florida Atlantic University at uh, Davie, Florida, an extension of the Boca Raton campus, and I was running the um, uh, information desk there at the front, and uh, things were going pretty well when I decided to write this book and go back to school and, and so on, and so what I did was, on the weekends, uh, I would have a ticket. I would call them up first of all and I would talk with them and then I I would reserve a date and then I would make sure it was on a Saturday or Sunday and uh, I would leave on a Friday night and fly wherever I had to go and then uh, either that day or later on the next day uh, I would have an interview with them and they were great. They were just wonderful to talk with and uh, I just uh, loved them to death. When I, I, I talked to Dr. Borum I after we got done with the interview uh, I said uh, gee, I wish I could get hold of some of these other guys that are still around I but I don't know and he says, oh why didn't you say so and he reached in and he pulled out this pulled out his little address book and he said uh, just a minute and he called up trucks and he called up uh, Jimmy outlaw and I had two more interviews just like that and the only interviews I had to really go out of my way to get was Pierce and uh, Merkowitz. I had to call the Detroit club to get their phone numbers, and they had to get permission from them to give me the phone numbers. Of course, when they found out I was interviewing all these other guys, it was okay. So uh, that that was really a thrill, and not not only that, but we there's a lot of stuff we talked about that wasn't on uh, in the book, you know, that uh, covered other years and covered some things, you know, during that year that uh, decided not to put in, but. The uh, conversations I had with them were, to me, were very precious. I was sitting right there in the midst of the people that uh, I so respected, you know, when I was young, growing up. And uh, they were people that I uh, had uh, a idea of how I wanted to act and how I wanted to be, you know, when I, when I followed them. And uh, they didn't let me down when I talked to them. They were still had a lot of character as far as I was concerned. And uh, I in, I enjoyed it very immensely.
0: Finally, Bridge, let me ask you about the legacy of this championship team. It seems like the other three Tigers teams that won World Series championships made more of a lasting imprint in the city's memory. Uh, and it's partly the stigma of this team and this season, the 1945 season being overshadowed by war and the depletion of rosters during the war. Now, for you, the 45 team is obviously a personal story or you have a personal connection with it. But what do you want the rest of the city of Detroit, other Tiger fans, to remember about this team that won it all in 45?
1: Well, first of all, they're world champions. Uh, you know. And any time you're world champions, I don't care what the circumstances are, you're playing in that era. And you're playing against those people and they're playing against you. And if you win a world championship, you know, that should be respected. Uh, I know Les Mueller, he said uh, he really was upset with, and and Billy Pierce too, he said uh, they, they both said they were upset with the way the writers treated them, you know, because of the fact that uh, the war went on. They had a lot of guys that uh, might not have made it in other places, but they said these guys were good Major League ballplayers. Uh, he's talking about the core. You talk about Columbine and Kramer, Greenberg and Newhouser and Trout. Trout was, a, was just an ox of a guy when he went out there. And uh, uh, you talk about those type of ballplayers and Richards and Swift. And they, you don't talk a lot about Bobby Swift, but Bobby Swift was a accomplished catcher, great handler of pitchers. Richards used to handle Newhouse or Trout used to handle, uh, I mean, uh, Swift used to handle Trout. But uh, they were representative of their time. And uh, whether they could stand up to scrutiny, uh, you know, on other major leagues uh, would be something in question. If you put these other teams under the same circumstances, you know, and they played in the same time period, it would be interesting to see how they would hold up under under those circumstances, too. So you take them by errors. You know, uh, the 84 team was it, probably the best team uh, that the Tigers ever put out. Uh, 68 was right there with them. And the 35 team was a great ball club, too, actually, 34 and 35. But uh, that 45 team the way they wanted it, and it's the people that they had and it was the circumstances that they played in and underneath and how it all went about and fell in place and all the things that happened during the season and so you know I, I think they deserve a place uh, that's um, to be respected and uh, to be held in, uh, in a great deal of uh, honor.
0: Well Burge thanks for your work to preserve their legacy thanks for sharing these memories thanks for your time today.
1: Uh, You're quite welcome. I hope the interview was good for
0: you. Absolutely. Thanks. Okay. Burge Carmen Smith is the author of The 1945 Detroit Tigers, Nine Old Men and One Young Left Arm Win It All. You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierman. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. The Tigers History Podcast is a proud partner of Detroit sports and entertainment. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers History, and join us next time for the Tigers History Podcast.